Okay, I do have a joke, but it's not funny and you won't like it. That, that summarizes just about every joke that's been told on this show. Okay, perfect. Uh, so the joke goes like this. There is a duck and the duck has a chapped beak and he walks into a pharmacy and the duck asks the pharmacist, I have a chapped beak, uh, can you help me with it? And the pharmacist says, I'm sorry, we have nothing for ducks here. Hello! Welcome to The Calgarian. I'm Taylor Lambert. Uh, this episode, I think, is one of the most interesting conversations that I've had on this show. Um, and that's a high bar. Uh, my guest is Kate Jacobson. Um, Kate does a bunch of different things in the public sphere. She is the host of the excellent Alberta Advantage podcast, uh, which, if you're not familiar with it, focuses on left-wing perspectives, history, and politics, um, very much rooted in Calgary and in the prairies in general. She is an organizer and activist and does uh, a bunch of work in that sphere, one example of which is the Renters Action Movement, which is a tenants' rights organization. Uh, she's very active on Twitter, and through those online conversations and through the work that she does, uh, Kate takes up very clear positions as a socialist and defends socialist ideals, uh, which is great. Well, I think it's great. Maybe you don't think it's great, but it's my show, so I think it's great. Um, but I was curious about what it's like to be a very public socialist, um, engaging in the public discourse and doing public work and organizing in a wildly pro-capitalist city like Calgary, where people protest in favor of pipelines and wear our I Heart Oil t-shirts to support the Petrostate. Um, so it was a really, really great, interesting conversation. Um, just before we get to that, a quick reminder that this show relies on your support to continue going. So if you are enjoying listening to these riveting conversations for free and without advertisements, please consider showing some support however you like whether it's spreading the word about the show on social media or giving a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen uh, or kicking in a buck or two a month on Patreon. It's all very appreciated. You can visit thecalgarian.ca for more information. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Kate Jacobson. <laughs> I, I like it. Where, where did that joke come from? Uh, I'm not sure. My, it's my boyfriend's go-to joke when he's told to tell a joke because usually it makes people incredibly mad, which is funny to us. <laughs> mad because it's just a, a not, an anti-joke. Well, it's just not really a joke. Or I guess like the joke is that ducks can't talk, uh, <laughs> which is, again, not really a joke. <laughs> I feel like this is well-known fact. Um, okay, so... There's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to get to with you. You do a lot of different things. You, of course, host the Alberta Advantage podcast, which is super interesting and wonderful, and everyone should listen to it. It covers a lot of different things, but is generally rooted in left-wing politics from a prairie perspective. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you are involved in Renters Action Movement, which advocates for tenants' rights in Alberta. You are... 
uh, one of, if not the most prominent Calgary socialist on Twitter, I think. <laughs> Sometimes people do meet me and say, are you Kate from Twitter? And I have to say yes, which never ceases to be embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing. You have a great Twitter presence. Um, so that's, that's a lot of things. Did I miss anything? Oh, did you miss anything? Um, I've been involved in some climate justice work in Alberta, largely through helping out with some of the folks in Climate Justice Edmonton who do great work up in Treaty 6. But I think those are the main things that I do in the city. You can also usually find me at whatever protests and packet lines I can manage to get to after work or on my lunch break. <laughs> okay, so most, pretty much all of those things um, are rooted in politics and your personal politics. So I think that's maybe a good place to start. How would you summarize your personal politics for listeners who may not be well-versed in political theory? Sure. So I would say I am a socialist. And what I mean when I say that I'm a socialist is that I think our society should not be organized around profit. So currently we have a society where the structures in our society and many of the commodities that we need are organized around profit. So you have to pay for housing, you have to pay for food, despite the fact that you need those things to live. In my opinion, a socialist society would be organized around meeting people's needs on a basis of rational, scientific, humane planning, instead of allocating based them based on people's ability to pay. Uh, and that to me is kind of the root of my politics uh, is that like you look around in our society and you see the way that assigning things based on profit just completely fails people on a regular basis uh, and seeing how we can move beyond kind of the profit motive and the rest of my politics sort of springs from there so it's like why is like why do tenants deserve more protection because housing is a human right your ability to have housing shouldn't be based on your ability to pay for it everyone deserves to have housing and i think in a society that was socially and rationally planned absolutely we would be able to meet people's basic needs uh, without some kind of profit motive you can tell that you've uh, had to explain that more than a few times because it was very articulate um I'm, I'm curious about like how did you come to your, um, how did you develop your politics? What, 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 did you grow up in a, in a political household or how did you come to that? Yeah, so I have a pretty cheap uh, answer to this question, which is that my parents are socialists. So uh, I know a lot of people who I meet here who have similar politics. Oftentimes they have conservative or liberal parents. Um, so for them, their politics are a break from their family. But for me, uh, I very much grew up with socialist politics uh, and with parents who were very supportive of me developing my own politics. Uh, when I was 14, my family lived in Airdrie and there was a lot of school overcrowding at the time because of the way PCs, the progressive conservative government at the time, was allocating resources uh, to the school system in Alberta. Um, so I was in the ninth grade, just completely overcrowded classrooms, looking like 40, 50 people, not enough chairs for everyone. So when our local MLA, who was a PC, uh, came to town, I got some fellow students together and organized a picket line at City Hall about it. And my parents were always very supportive of things like that uh, and of trying to like make some of the links for me about like, okay, you're like experiencing this and this is how you feel. Uh, this is how it's connected to kind of larger societal issues and larger social problems. And that's really how I developed like a lot of my politics as a young adult. And then of course, just like getting involved in things as like an adult really developed my politics. So actually like talking with other people about your 
beliefs, reading things, discussing them together, uh, being involved in movement work, all that kind of stuff really allowed me to develop my politics a bit more. You, you grew up in Airdrie or in Calgary or both? So I was born in Wales in the United Kingdom, and then I lived in America when I was a child, as well as in Northern Ireland, and then I moved to Airdrie, and then I moved into Calgary when I was 19. Okay, so you've long association with the Calgary area, let's say. I, I also mostly grew up in Calgary, and even well before I came, had any political awareness or ethos, um, I was just very aware that Calgary was, number one, quite conservative, and number two, very money-driven. Um, like, even from a, a relatively young age, th these were just things that I recognized, um, like the sky is blue. Um, free market capitalism is something of a religion in Alberta, and in Calgary is the holy city of that religion. So I'm, I'm curious about what it's like to be someone with left-wing political views. I mean, I'm someone with left-wing political views, but you are um, more active in that. You are very uh, outspoken about that. So I'm, I'm curious about what it's like to um, espouse those views and work to uh, put them into action in a city like Calgary? Big question. Um, <laughs> yes, Calgary is very conservative, but it's also the birthplace of the CCF, which is the precursor. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> which is the precursor <laughs> to today's NDP. Um, yes, the prairies are in general conservative places, but they were made into conservative places um, through a variety of material forces, just in the same way that we also think of the prairies as a very white place. Well, the prairies were made into a white place through genocide and through colonial violence, and these things can all be unmade, I believe. So for me, one of the things that's really important for me to keep in mind in my own politics is that people's minds can change. Just because things are like this now doesn't mean they'll be like this forever. If I thought that, oh, this is just the way Calgary is and it's never going to change, then yeah, it would be deeply depressing to live and try and do work here. But I really do fundamentally believe that people are capable of learning and growing and changing. And I also believe that a lot of the opinions we see represented as Calgary opinions are not actually representative of the vast majority of people in Calgary. Uh, a lot of the people who get platformed on a regular basis are what oil company CEOs, their developers, their people who run in those circles. Uh, and I'm sure they have a very specific way they think about Calgary, about Alberta, about property taxes, about the provincial government, uh, about development, like you name it. But I don't know if that necessarily represents everyone in Calgary. I don't think it represents tenants. I don't think it represents new immigrant families. I don't think it represents um, uh, LGBTQ people. Like there's so many people that uh, are not represented by this mythos of like what we think of a Calgary or an Alberta or a Prairie idea. So for me and so much of the work that I do, it's about trying to find people who are like disenfranchised uh, and get people to be organized, whether that's workers, tenants, what have you. And the other thing I think is really important in Calgary is that there are a lot of people here, and I imagine a lot of the listeners of this podcast probably have this politics, where people are progressive because they're not conservative. Um, so they look at the conservatives in this province and they're like, oh, like, that's not really for me. Like, I don't really like it. But they don't really have well-developed politics kind of beyond that. So you get this really weird sort of mishmash of politics where you're kind of like pro-development and like into gentrification. Uh, and maybe you really like small businesses. So, ooh, maybe property taxes are a little bit bad. But you also like like bike lanes and think that public services are good and public transit. So for me, it's trying to kind of 
politically educate people who are sort of already like not conservative, but are maybe not at a place where I would consider as having like developed left-wing politics. And that's not like a endpoint that you just meet and you're like, well, I've like developed my politics, time to just kind of pack everything up and go home, but a process of like developing your politics with other people. That was um, perhaps the best, most comprehensive and most diplomatic description of Calgary progressives I've ever heard. Uh, that's just bang on, I think. Um, and I totally take your point and agree with you that Calgary is a very, very diverse place. It doesn't get enough credit for its diversity, both culturally and, and politically and, and many other different ways. I guess what I'm asking more is um, Calgary is a place where uh, people will, not, not everyone, but a, a certain sector of the population will push back against any sort of progressivism of any stripe whether it's something as simple as bike lanes. Um, but if you start telling people you're a socialist, I guess I'm curious if you get something uh, exponentially uh, bigger in terms of pushback. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's only exacerbated by the fact that I am both young and a woman and Jewish, uh, which especially when you get into kind of the far right, alt right, is just a cocktail of things people really don't tend to appreciate. Um, I mean, absolutely. I think it's really tied to misogyny and to petro-nationalism. The biggest pushback I've gotten in anything I've done here is anti-pipeline work. Um, that is just something, it's like you've criticized people's moms uh, when you criticize the pipeline. Um, I was arrested protesting uh, a pipeline about a year and a half ago during an occupation of Kinder Morgan's corporate office. This was before the government of Canada had bought the pipeline, if you can believe it. Uh, and part of that protest was live streamed on Facebook. If you go back and look at the comments, I mean, it's just absolutely some of those vile stuff you can imagine, right? It's just people fantasizing about like violence being enacted to you, whether by themselves or by the police. Um, so like that's some, certainly an area I think in which like a lot of pushback uh, is faced particularly by women. And then within that, like particularly by indigenous women uh, who bear kind of the brunt of this sort of colonial patronationalist violence. Um, absolutely. I don't really think about it a lot or let it bother me. Uh, these people are complete like keyboard warriors. Uh, nothing will ever really happen to you in real life, at least in my experience. And they want you to feel scared. They want you to feel intimidated. So you don't go to protests and picket lines and meetings. And I just refuse uh, to do that, absolutely. I think a lot of these people too are paper tigers. There was a Green New Deal meeting uh, recently in Calgary that Corey Morgan, who is part of some kind of pro-oil sands group uh, threatened to brigade on Twitter and you get a whole bunch of people uh, saying that like they're going to show up and protest. I went there, uh, there was maybe four people outside uh, holding signs about how Canada's oil is really important. One of them worked for the rebel. So, you know, I think a lot of the this stuff is really like paper tigers. I don't think they're really going to show up and uh, do anything bad. Of course, you should always like take all kind of like necessary precautions, but I just refuse to allow these people to stop me from doing things that I think are important and that I think are right. A lot of um, young progressive folks that I know uh, who are from Calgary tend to leave Calgary um, yeah. as soon as they can because they think it's all the stereotypes come true for them. They think it's very conservative. They think it's very terrible. They, they don't see any future for themselves here. Um, you have stayed. Yeah. And I'm curious why. What, what do you what do you what do you like about this city? 
Well, one of the reasons I've stayed, and one of the reasons I imagine many people stay, is because moving is expensive. Uh, and I have a job here, and I have my family and my friends living here. So part of it is certainly just convenience. Um, but I really feel an obligation to stay in Calgary and to continue to do uh, work here, to continue to do socialist work here. Because if I don't do it, and if my comrades don't do it, then like, who is going to do it. Um, it's not like a city like Montreal or Toronto or Philadelphia or New York where if you leave like this work will continue on without you. A lot of it is very small and it is currently uh, driven through the sheer force of will of individuals or of small groups of people. Obviously the goal is to get it to a point where you're dealing with groups and organizations that are large enough um, that losing individual members isn't as much of a problem, but that's just not the situation we're in uh, right now. So I feel very much an obligation uh, in that sense. I also don't think we should just leave parts of the country to die um, and to be left behind. Uh, I think people should stay in their communities if it is at all possible for them uh, and to fight for them. I know it's very difficult. I'm sure it would be easier to do some of this work in Vancouver, Toronto, um, but that's all the more reason for me to stay here and to make sure that this kind of work is done here. I will also say that I do genuinely like Calgary. Like, I like some of the things about it. I like that it feels like a small town. I like being close to the mountains. I love the prairies. I just, I love looking at them. Uh, they're one of the most beautiful places in the entire world to me. So there are things I really, really do genuinely enjoy. Uh, and one of the things I do like to joke about with my friends that I will say is, you never have to worry here about people being left-wing for like the clout. Like no one's like, I'm going to be left-wing because it's part of like, just like a fun scene. It's just like, it is not. People will constantly threaten to kill you. Um, like you will constantly be worried about getting fired from your job uh, and so on and so on. So you never have to worry about people just like pretending to have a certain politics. People do tend to be uh, really committed to these ways of thinking about the world and of doing this kind of work, which I think is uh, quite welcome. It's no place for socialist dilettantes. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I don't know how, if you've done very much uh, organizing in other places other than like Calgary, but I'm, I'm curious about how you would compare and contrast um, doing that work in Calgary to doing it other places. Uh, some, some of the stuff you've already touched on is that like, you know, Calgary's political makeup and um, the fact that there's not that many um, people doing this work in Calgary, and that's why it's important to stay here. I'm, I'm just worried, I'm not worried, I'm just curious about um, how, how hard it is to do that stuff here. Yeah, so I can do a comparison because I lived in Glasgow when I was in my um, early 20s and I was involved in organizing there against zero-hour contracts with a great group called Better Than Zero. Uh, zero-hour contracts, as far as I'm aware, are a UK thing pretty much exclusively, but they're where you work somewhere and your boss only has to give you zero hours a week. So people uh, in service work basically just are on call all the time and if they displease their boss in any way, they're not actually guaranteed any hours. Whereas in Canada, for example, if you work part-time, you are like guaranteed uh, a certain number of hours. So kind of organizing against that precarity of work. But absolutely, 
in other places there are just like so many more structures that will support this kinds of organizing work like it will often be funded through uh, grants through their local social democratic parties through uh, trade unions all that kind of thing so there is just more support literally just in terms of things like money and office space and printers that you have access to so you can print leaflets and all this kind of stuff um, and that framework exists in Calgary to some extent, where it kind of exists everywhere, but certainly not to the level uh, that it exists in other places. And there also just isn't a big history of social movement organizing in Calgary. Uh, so I was talking with some folks I know who do organizing uh, around housing in Washington, D.C. with a group called Stomp Out Slumlords. Um, and D.C. like has an incredibly long history of housing activism. So when they were doing work on anti-evictions, they were able to kind of plug into organizations that had really long histories of organizing and working with communities. Uh, a lot of the information is out there. A lot of like tactics have already been tried. Whereas in Calgary, you say, okay, what is the history of like housing activism in Calgary? Uh, and there certainly is some. Like, don't get me wrong, uh, but you're definitely not plugging into the same kind of uh, long history of movements that you might find uh, in other places, which just means that you have to try more things because people haven't already done uh, some of that groundwork for you. Okay, let's talk about Alberta Advantage. Uh, how did it start and what, what did you want to do with it? Right, so the Alberta Advantage is a podcast that I host and sound engineer. Uh, we release episodes twice a month, our main episodes, which are usually about history and politics in Alberta and on the prairies. And then we also release one or two mini episodes a month, which are uh, sometimes interviews with uh, local creators or with uh, academics. And then sometimes they are us making fun of post-media columnists. So. The project started in October of 2017. Uh, it was started by a uh, friend of mine who also runs a reading group that we all go to. So the origins of the podcast are in a local reading group. And that, I think, has been really beneficial for us for a couple of reasons. First, it gave us all like tons of practice in talking to each other and like figuring out our politics and learning how to agree and to disagree with each other uh, but in a way that was a really like productive interesting discussion and it also gives us a common uh, because we've all read some of the same books it gives us kind of a common basis of understanding for how we approach political questions in Alberta and on the prairies so for example we've all read uh, Red Skin White Masks by uh, Glenn Sean Coulthard which has really informed our approach to kind of colonial politics of recognition and colonialism on the prairies or we've all read Prairie Capitalism by Larry Pratt and John Richards which really informs the way we've been thinking about resource development and about uh, resource extraction um, so kind of having that common like, political understanding of the project and of the area we were trying to examine was incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, basically, our goal with it is to target like left liberals. So we consider ourselves leftists, socialists, uh, for the most part would be probably the best umbrella term, but basically targeting people who like, maybe they work for a trade union, maybe they are a progressive because they know they don't like Sean Chu, but they don't have very well-developed politics beyond that. Maybe they volunteer for the NDP, uh, but they haven't really thought about like what constitutes their deeply held political beliefs. So trying to kind of radicalize people who are left liberals, I guess the best word for it, uh, but close to our politics, but not quite there in terms of uh, their analysis of society and of where we are and how we're going to get out of this mess that we're in, quite frankly. Um, and then the other target is just 
there, when we started the podcast, there wasn't any podcasts that were about Alberta and about the prairies in particular. And I think this is an area of the country that is really underexamined and understudied. And I think it is worth uh, taking concepts and political theory and actually applying it to learn about the place that we are in. Um, I know for a long time I, like so many Canadians, paid so much attention to American politics but didn't really understand what was going in on in Canada. I think that same dynamic also occurs within Canada uh, where people, they might know a ton about even what's happening in Ontario at a federal level but not a ton about our provincial government. Um, plus Alberta has a really big history of a lot of, inc like even just in the 100 years since like colonialism. Um, so talking about like settler history, there has been a lot that has happened that is not really taught in schools that people don't know about. Like social credit. What was that? What was even really going on there? Um, the Ralph Klein years and the Ralph Klein cuts, the discovery of uh, oil and kind of how like resource development happened in a really weird and very particular way in Alberta. I think examining that history and kind of being aware of it is really, really important because I think a lot of people look around at Calgary and at Alberta and they say, I don't like the way it is, but I don't even understand like how it got here. Like, why does everyone like oil? Uh, why do working people in Alberta vote conservative? Uh, and trying to examine our history and find answers to those questions. Like rural people aren't just naturally conservative. There's very specific like circumstances that went into the way that like land was divided up and given to white settlers after colonialism and then the way that like neoliberalism impacted rural areas with depopulation the arrival of large slaughterhouses and agribusiness that is a much more compelling like material explanation for a question like why do rural areas tend to vote conservative in provincial elections than just like oh like they're just like that like they're naturally socially conservative so moving past those kind of really banal uh, explanations for a more deeper interrogation of why things are the way they are and what we can do to change them. Yeah, that's just received wisdom that people just sort of accept that uh, certain areas are conservative and that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, the examples you gave about Alberta history that we have not taught in schools and have forgotten social credit and, and Ralph Klein years, these I, I noticed that these are uh, topics that the Alberta Advantage have done deep dives into and explainer episodes on. Um, I love I love the history that you guys tackle uh, and explain because it, it is stuff that uh, that like I often don't I'm not familiar with. Um, one example of that is the the Winnipeg general strike, mm -hmm. uh, which is a hundredth anniversary that just passed. Um, can you talk a little bit about that in particular and, and about like why why we should care about that now a hundred years later? So the Winnipeg general strike for people who uh, aren't aware is probably the largest workers revolt in Canada uh, outside of Quebec. There was a really large general strike in Quebec in 1972. Uh, however, I would still argue that the Winnipeg general strike was perhaps more significant as a workers revolt just because I think its contents had an implied challenge to the capitalist system and to the Canadian state in a way that the general strike in Quebec uh, didn't. It was more uh, aimed on more business unionism uh, objectives uh, than something like the Winnipeg general strike. Uh, and it was actually started by non-unionized workers in Winnipeg who worked off, walked off the job and ended up being joined by many of the non-union union workers uh, in the city. And it was eventually crushed by the Canadian government during uh, Bloody Saturday when police or the RCMP charged into a crowd and shot 
several people. Um, so a really, really big moment. Uh, and definitely like at the time, you have to remember like 1919, uh, the Spartacus Revolution uh, happens in Germany the same year. The Russian Revolution with the Bolsheviks happened two years ago. So when this was happening, this was very much at a time when the legitimacy uh, of the capitalist system was entirely in question. So people, in some ways, like truly felt uh, both uh, the strikers or the communists at the time, and also the government, that this was like a prelude to revolution. Uh, people were really worried about it kind of like getting out of hand or uh, what have you. So that's the Winnipeg General Strike. Uh, why should you care about this uh, anymore? Um, that's actually a good question, and I do think sometimes we have a tendency to fetishize things that happen uh, in the past because they were cool and incredible and really, really inspiring. But we should also be honest with ourselves that our material conditions have changed completely. It's not the end of the First World War. We don't have hundreds of thousands of returning soldiers being integrated into Canadian society, um, et cetera, et cetera. So being realistic and trying to understand the conditions under which historical events took place is, I think, really important. But honestly, the reason we should care about things that we that happened in the past is they give us impetus for doing things now. When we look at the past, it can just seem like a long line of terrible things happening, leading to a maybe even not so great present. And I think that's actually a true and fair way uh, to look at the past is it does just look like things are not good uh, for most of it. But there are these moments of like real, true, revolutionary potential and of hope uh, that happen in the past. And they kind of like pierce through this long, long line uh, of misery and conquest and capitalism and racism and colonialism. Uh, there are absolutely like moments at which things are changed completely and irrevocably. And all of the victories that we have had uh, have come from those moments. So to me, knowing that things are possible to change, uh, even in really bad circumstances, is very, very important uh, to keep in mind because otherwise it can feel very difficult. Like our enemies are in power and we do keep losing. That sucks to experience, and it sucks to experience like the entire lifespan uh, of human history. So saying that that is not always the case uh, is, incredibly, incredibly important for me. And it's also important, I think, because at the root of my politics are this idea that the society I would want to live in, an ideal society, is not something that has been realized. Like, I'm not trying to get back to a certain time in society. Not even like the golden age of capitalism uh, in the post-war that I think a lot of social democrats and left liberals tend to fantasize about. At the core of my politics is the idea that a better society is possible and it can be created, but we haven't got there yet. So looking at history as a way of saying like, uh, these are times where there were moments of like creation and possibility of new and different worlds uh, is really, really important because that's what informs what I think like a political project should do right now. I think maybe this is a good place to segue to um, Renters Action Movement. Um, tell, me, tell me about that and, uh, and about why we need renters, uh, tenants, rights advocates in Alberta. 
Yeah, so the Renters Action Movement is Calgary's uh, tenants organizing uh, group. So we basically aim to organize tenants. And when I say tenants, a lot of people are going to think about renters, uh, which is what I am. I live in uh, purpose-built rental housing, so every month I give the property management company a certain amount of money. But we think of tenants as a social category that basically expands to include anyone who doesn't have control over their housing situation. So like young queer youth uh, who live with their families would absolutely be uh, tenants, uh, people who are unhoused, tenants, uh, seniors who live in seniors' homes, uh, tenants, absolutely, people who live in public housing or social housing, uh, tenants. It's basically just people who don't have control over their housing in the way that, say, uh, a homeowner would. Um, why is it important to organize these people? A lot of times when people do politics, they do politics with self-selecting groups. Um, which means that, let's say you have an event and the event is about like advocating for bike lanes. That is going to be a self-selecting group because you are going to bring in people uh, who have self-selected uh, to already have those politics and already have that position. Whereas I would say organizing tenants is you're organizing people not because of their opinions, but because of the social relation they find themselves in. It's the same way a union goes into a workplace and organizes the workers, the people who are not management, who can't hire and fire anyone, who uh, own the building and derive profit from it, or own the business and derive profit from it. Uh, it's not because the workers necessarily like have all the opinions uh, that the union has, it's because they have a certain social relation uh, within it. They sell their labor for a living to their boss, and their bosses don't, therefore you organize those people, whereas tenants don't have control over their housing, and landlords do, and that's why we organize tenants. Uh, and the reason it's important to think about politics that way is then you can start thinking about uh, the power that people have. Uh, when they come together in collective groups. If tenants don't pay their rent, landlords can't make any money. Uh, and that's like absolutely at the core of it. Like there have been groups in Canada that have undergone successful rent strikes uh, against um, increases in their rent or to protest uh, not having repairs done uh, on their buildings, right? So for me, when it comes to thinking about housing and organizing tenants is I'm looking at capitalism as a system and I'm saying, okay, where is the system like weak? Where are places that we can exert pressure and get what we want? And I absolutely think that housing uh, is one of those places. Exerting um, pressure against um, landlords in, in that way, like by withholding rent as a, as, a, as a group, I feel like part of that is you're, you're using social pressure to, to convince to the landlord to do something or not do something. And I wonder if in a place like Calgary where home ownership is fetishized to an unbelievable degree, even relative to the rest of Canada, um, and renters are looked on as literally second-class citizens because people believe that they don't pay property taxes. Um, they do through their rent, by the way. Um, is that less of a, of a game plan here because there would be less sympathy for, in, in your example of like people withholding rent, mm -hmm. the landlord could take legal action against them and have them evicted and there wouldn't, you know, the media would report on it and there might not be the public sympathy for those folks because they are lowly renters. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we are working on as a project right now is 
people in Calgary seem to think that tenants like don't belong to their communities or don't have communities or don't participate in communities and that is something that isn't exclusively reserved for homeowners. People who rent love their homes, they love where they live, they participate in their communities. I literally, I'm a tenant, I literally came to this interview for my community garden plot where I was talking with someone about like spinach harvests. You know, I'm doing the most quintessential participating in my community thing you can do. I know my neighbors, I know my neighbors kids, I know my neighbors dogs, like tenants are absolutely uh, part of their communities. So one of the things that we've been working on is trying to in ways like change that public perception of tenants. Uh, a lot of tenants are just people who can't own property for whatever reason and that is completely fine. You shouldn't have to own property to be a member of society. Or don't want to own property. Yeah, you don't have to own property, uh, even if you can afford it. And a lot of people can't. Uh, and a lot of people are also put themselves into very dangerous and bad financial situations in order to own property and are taken advantage of by banks uh, to do this, uh, especially uh, black and brown people who are often preyed upon by uh, predatory banks when it comes to lending. So like, it's not a great system, especially uh, for tenants and even for uh, homeowners at kind of uh, the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to uh, wealth and income. The other thing is I would actually push back on people in Calgary not having sympathy for uh, tenants. One of the larger campaigns we did was around Kensington Manor, which was a building that uh, we believe was renovated in uh, Kensington. Renovation is where basically the landlord or the building owner just doesn't do repairs uh, on a building to a point where it becomes uninhabitable and then oh look at that they can evict everyone and sell the land and turn it into uh, condos so very much a part of gentrification and we did information pickets out in front of that building and we were getting people to sign pre-printed letters off that we were sending to the minister of service alberta and every single person i stopped on the street uh would like look across that building and be like, yes, that is an absolute shame what happened to those people. It was one of the easiest sells I've ever had on a picket line in terms of like getting people uh, involved. So I do think absolutely there is like, um, there's fetishization of homeownership and people like look down on tenants, but also I think that when confronted with the very, very clear realities of what is happening to tenants, uh, when you make that ask of people to support tenants, I found people have generally actually been uh, pretty receptive. Maybe not the opinion pages of the Calgary Heralds, but people I stop on the street, like they're usually pretty into it. God bless the opinion pages of the Calgary Herald. Um, how is the spinach harvest, by the way, this year? Oh, it's excellent. Um, I had a big problem this year with my uh, bok choy. It, like, I was waiting for it to grow bulbs, and then it did not grow bulbs, and it just all went to seed. I firmly believe that everyone has like one vegetable that they are cursed to be really bad uh, at growing, and mine is bok choy. I'm very sorry to hear that. Me too. I really like bok choy. <laughs> um, so, how fucked are we? <laughs> you have you have throughout this conversation uh, alluded to this uh, this mess that we are in currently which you know encompasses so many different things but there there is, there is a sense and i have certainly have this sense that uh, we are fucked in so many different ways um how do you how do you feel about that overall i feel pretty bad a lot of the time uh our enemies are in power the climate crisis is accelerating, uh, fascism is gaining power, uh, white supremacy is on the rise, and I don't feel good about any of those things. However, 
capitalism has a tendency towards crisis. Um, and usually capitalism tries to resolve that crisis by displacing it, either spatially, so you'll see that the reason we have so many uh, cheap goods for working people in North America is because that crisis of capitalism has been displaced onto the global south. Or capitalism will try and displace crises temporally. So the reason we have all these cheap, efficient goods is because we are boiling the planet uh, and it will be uninhabitable uh, 20 years from now. So there's very much this kind of cyclical cycle of crises in capitalism that are constantly getting displaced. Um, but when the contradictions of capitalism become apparent, which I think they have been more and more since the 2008 financial crash, that is an opportunity. Uh, and I don't want to just pretend that, oh, because things are bad in capitalism, everyone will magically become socialists. We know that's not true. Um, and crises in capitalism are just as much of an opportunity for the right uh, as they are for the left. People say right-wingers don't have a climate plan. What do you think anti-migrant sentiments are? That is their climate plan, is closing the borders and enforcing like untold misery and suffering in the global south. So these things are opportunities for everyone, including our ideological enemies. But they are still opportunities uh, for us to demonstrate to people the ways in which solidarity can make a better society. They are ways in which to demonstrate people that your enemies are not arriving uh, by boat. They are arriving by limousine. Like your enemies are the very, very rich like Canadian uh, companies who are headquartered here who make billions and billions of dollars at the same time they empty out uh, downtown office towers because they're supposedly not profitable. So I try and remind myself of that. And I also think it's very important like I'm a white person and I'm living in the global north. What is like climate fatalism here is untold misery uh, and suffering for people in the global south, for indigenous people in Canada. Every project of fossil fuel extraction that we can stop, every person we can get out of a car and onto public transit is buying us like more time. Uh, every like fraction of a degree we can prevent in warming like that will save the lives of hundreds of thousands of people so things look bad but like i don't think it should be an option for us to just kind of throw our hands back uh and not do the work that's uh, probably as close to optimism and hopefulness as i can expect I don't really believe in optimism because I'm a Marxist. I think both optimism <laughs> and pessimism are unscientific uh, and they don't allow us to analyze the world as it is. You know, like, I really do my best to kind of look at the world and see the ways uh, in which it truly is. And this world is immensely cruel and immensely violent. Uh, it is capitalist, it is imperialist, and it is extremely, extremely cruel along those lines. But like you have to do that analysis in order to understand the places where you can exert pressure uh, and the ways in which things can change. The other thing is that our material conditions change all the time. Like 10 years ago, no one would have been able to predict the world we live in now and so on and so on. So I think reminding myself that material conditions uh, always change is very helpful. Also reminding myself that things have been really, really bad before. Uh, I'm definitely not like the first person to just be like, I am living like an existential threat to my future. That's something that a lot of people have uh, experienced. That at least makes me personally uh, feel a little bit better. 
I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, if uh, people listen to this and they are moved to get involved, to contribute in some way, what would you recommend that they do? Definitely contact the Renters Action Movement. We are currently looking at expanding our volunteer base right now, and we would love to hear from you. Um, if you are a tenant or even if you are a homeowner, we do have people who organize with us who own their homes and who are allies to tenants in this way. Uh, we are RentersActionMovement at gmail.com, and I would really, really encourage you to get involved. And I would also encourage you to listen to the Alberta Advantage. It's a pretty good show. Uh, and I think you will learn a lot about Calgary and about Alberta from listening to it. I agree. Kate, thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to interview me. That's it for the show. Big thanks to Kate Jacobson. Uh, if you are not familiar with the Alberta Advantage podcast, I strongly urge you to go check it out. Uh, you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. And also check the show notes for this episode. I will put some links in there if you're interested in following up with Kate or with the Renters Action Movement. The Calgarian is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Lambert. Theme music is Dandelion by Ghostkeeper. If you like this show, please feed and water it by sharing it on social media, leaving a review in your podcast app, or checking out the Patreon. Visit thecalgarian.ca for more details. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.